Today on Taxpayer Talk, we sit down with National MP Penny Simmons for a new entry of our MPs In-Depth series. Simmons is a first-term MP, one of just five new National MPs elected at the most recent election. Previously the Chief Executive of the Southern Institute of Technology, she is now the member for Invercargill and is her party's spokesperson for tertiary education with associate roles focused on agriculture and disability issues. Penny, you spent a remarkable 23 years leading a large polytechnic. Why give that up for politics? Yeah, well, that was a question a lot of people have asked me and I've asked myself. Uh, The problem was that the polytech sector was changing rapidly with the amalgamation of the polytechnics into Te Pukenga, um, a move that I very, very much opposed. Uh, I saw it taking the autonomy away from our regions and our uh, local industries. And so I knew that SIT, Southern Institute of Technology, was not going to be the same place and it couldn't be used in the same way for the benefit of, of our region. And I guess being chief executive there really was a vehicle to do a lot of things for our community and with our community. So we were we were known for being very integrated with our community to uh, being part of the move to halt the population decline, to uh, add more diversity and colour to our community, to uh, fill skill shortages. So once that was taken away from the job, it wasn't the job that I wanted any longer. The backdrop of this merger was obviously significant deficits at uh, politics across the country. Do you think that there was an alternative way that that financial side of things could be addressed? Absolutely. And so it it actually wasn't deficits across the country. It was really only about four that were really struggling with deficits uh, and mainly in Auckland and Wellington with some of the very small ones also having issues with scale. So I think at the time it was a $40 million deficit across the whole sector. Uh, now, $120 million is being pumped into this new entity. So you try and figure out how that's better for the country as a whole and how it's better for the region. So now the polytech sector is run from Hamilton, from a head office in Hamilton. There are now layers of management that are being paid huge salaries that are based uh, from Hamilton, and that then is on top of the individual polytechnics. So it, it makes absolutely no sense to me. More money being spent on a problem that actually it just needed some uh, work on those large polytechnics that were running deficits in Auckland and Wellington mainly, and also uh, probably some amalgamations of the smaller ones that didn't have the scale. Mm. But it certainly didn't require turning the whole sector upside down and and centralising control of it. I don't have the figures in front of me, but I would encourage our listeners to look up the salaries at that merged polytechnic unit. Because if I remember correctly, it is exactly as you describe, enormous salaries, but they're not actually replacing uh, existing roles. It's actually additional layers. Absolutely additional layers. And I think the CE salary is over 600,000. The next layer down is around about that 450 to 500,000. Now they are higher than the CE salaries were for any of the individual ITPs 
and the individual ITPs still have chief executives of as course. well. So, um, yeah, it's it, look, there are silly, silly decisions being made because of it. And I can give a really good example in Invercargill where we had um, a set of apartments that we were about to build for student accommodation. We have quite a number of apartment blocks and we were about to build a, a new set for about 20 million and that was all consented all the specifications were done for it all the planning all the the contractor was uh, ready to go and the new entity uh, said no to these apartments being put up now on multiple Mm -hmm. levels that's just crazy one because they were being built out of cash reserves so SIT has over 40 million in cash reserves two there's a housing shortage, so why wouldn't you build if you had the ability to? And three, the return on those apartments was higher than having that money in the bank. So decisions like that that are not good for the community are being made now because we have subsidiary boards that are having to answer to a central body in Hamilton. Okay. I think I'll get back to the um, the Polytechs and specifically SIT, but first connected but more related to you. SIT, I guess you could say, is a quasi-government organisation. I'd be interested in whether you dispute that or would define it differently. Uh, it's funded primarily by taxpayers. So forgive the cheeky question, do you consider yourself a bureaucrat? Well, I consider that my main stakeholder when I was at SIT was the Southland community. Uh, Yes, it is about two-thirds funded by taxpayer funds, but that's not government money. That's money that's earned in uh, our community by our productive sector. And given that Southland contributes about 15% to New Zealand's GDP with 2% of the population, I think it was just a little bit of Southland's taxpayer money coming back into Southland. Okay. There's a perception, and you might dispute the premise of this question, but there's a perception that people from the public sector or the taxpayer-funded sector uh, inevitably have left-leaning politics. Uh, Do you believe that is the case? And if so or if not, what drew you to the National Party instead of, say, Labour? I think probably in Wellington, that's a good summation of the leanings uh, of um, perhaps people who uh, rely on uh, government funding for their income. Out in the regions, I think there is a much much greater level of pragmatism about um, what you're there for, you're there for the people, for the regions. So it was running a business. Running SIT was running a business. And some people don't like to hear that about the education sector, but it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we didn't run in a financially prudent manner, we didn't have the money to build the buildings, buy the equipment, pay the staff that we needed. So I think anyone that has business acumen tends to be more right-leaning because we understand how hard it is to create income, to generate income, how hard it is to balance all the different balls that you have in the year when you're running a business. Aside from a a priority of, uh, I guess, business values, have you developed throughout your career something of a political worldview or even ideology that may have led you into national? Certainly um, responsibility of self, um, people taking responsibility for uh, their own outcomes in life, certainly more business focused. I'm from a farming background. I'm a farmer's daughter, a farmer's wife, a farming partner. I 
understand that money doesn't grow on trees, which I'm struggling to see uh, how some of our uh, left-wing governments don't understand the concepts of, of how hard people work to generate uh, money. And so uh, that's perhaps been one of the things that's driven me, seeing just how hard people in small businesses work, yes. particularly out in the region, seeing how hard farmers work. And, and, you know, it just appalls me, absolutely appalls me how badly farmers have been treated and being an spoken about. Um, this whole dirty dairying, which has been really, um, a lot of it's been really nasty. There's been so much good work being done around riparian planting and fencing and being mindful of what's being put on pastures. So people like farmers and most business people are driven by logic and driven by science and driven by technology, uh, not this sort of emotive catchphrases that get thrown out there. And when I look at things like the suicide rates in the rural sector mm. going up by 17%, people that throw around those kind of emotive statements better take a fairly hard look at themselves and how much they have contributed to that because I know that a lot – look, it, there are some rogue farmers, just the same as there are some rogue politicians, some rogue lawyers, or rogue accountants, but the vast majority of farmers, the vast majority of business people are in it for the right reasons. They are, they care about their, farmers care about their stock, they care about their environment, they care about their staff. Of course you'll find the odd rogue one just as you find in any uh, profession. So I, I just think uh, some of these throwaway things that are bagging our productive sector, if we didn't have business people and if we didn't have farmers, we wouldn't have money to pay for the things that we want, education, health, supporting those that aren't able to work. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little more about the Invercargill electorate, because I was interested to see that you won your seat by just 224 votes. I wondered if you could tell us about the political dynamics, for example, whether you consider it a safe national seat. Uh, why do you think Labour came so close to winning it? Yeah, look, um, I don't think we should ever assume any seat safe anywhere. And uh, certainly the dynamics of COVID and uh, people feeling that they had been kept safe. Uh, there was also quite a lot of scaremongering that went around in the rural sectors about they needed to vote Labour to keep Greens out. So uh, there was a lot of fear around what would happen if Greens were in as a partner. So I think there was one, a swing because people, felt for some reason that Jacinda had saved their lives because mm -hmm. of COVID and also uh, that fear of the Greens. But, you know, people of Invercargill tend to be quite sort of pragmatic around business and farming and understand where their money comes from. Mm. I imagine that there's an interesting mix in Invercargill of the more rural community and then I guess students that may only be in the city for a temporary period of time. Uh, a little bit, although most of the students at SIT are uh, older students. The average age is around 26. Uh, so it's not that sort of um, Otago uh, influx of 18 to 21-year-olds. Yes. It is uh, slightly older people. Many of them are working part-time, uh, so they have a slightly different view of the world. Yes. 
Now, I'm going to get back to SIT now because uh, on that note, I understand a big focus of you has been attracting students to Invercargill. And the most obvious way that you've done this is through the fees-free program at SIT, which you instigated. I wondered if you could talk us through, from a taxpayer perspective, how that worked. Did, for example, you need to secure more public funding to make that happen? Yeah, a zero-fee scheme, and it came about through a lot of consultation with the community. So if I can just give you the context of it, Southland had been very, very hard hit in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, Rogenomics, you know, really hit the regions, rural regions like Southland very, very hard. So we'd had declining population. And so our community was very focused on uh, regeneration, really, of our community. And this was seen as a two-pronged um, approach really to economic development but also to upskilling and increasing the productivity uh, through a, a, a higher qualified um uh, working population. And so we worked closely with the local authorities, with businesses, with the philanthropy community in Southland, and they put up $7.25 million over three years uh, to enable us to get to that sustainable level of student numbers. So look, it, it wasn't smoke and mirrors. It mm -hmm. was a very simple formula. The amount that a student pays is actually only a small proportion of of the cost of delivery of their education, the largest part does come from uh, government funding. And so all we were doing was going from an average class size of around 13 up to an average class size of 18 and the additional uh, government funding of those extra five people um, covered the fixed costs because you, you, you only had a change in marginal yes. costs. You know, the fixed costs stayed the same. It was one building, yes. one uh, tutor in front of a class, uh, you know, it was so, so. The government funding that you received, uh, or the extra government funding you received as you attracted students through this fees free scheme, uh, was that simply just a result of increased student numbers? Yes, yes, it was. Yes, it was. Because at that time, for every additional uh, student that walked through your door, you got um, a set amount, and it depended on what class, what um, qualifications they were doing, but it averaged around about that sort of eight thousand dollar figure. So if you can imagine an extra five coming in, you're getting an extra eight thousand for each of those five. So um that that really made itself sustaining for us. And how significant was the contribution of private organisations? Very. Yeah, it was very because nobody had done this, so we didn't know how long it was going to take to get to that level of sustainability. Um, we, did, we, we did a lot of modelling. We did a lot of testing of it. We did a lot of um, scenarios, various budget scenarios, but it was really an insurance. Uh, the community was saying, look, we think this will be good for the community because we'd had the economic impact um, studies done of what the ripple effect was be the multiplier effect of extra mm -hmm. people coming into the region being uh, spending money on accommodation and entertainment and food things like that so the community knew that it would have economic benefit to them so they were prepared to put that funding in to get us from that point of 13 up to 18 and of course it did take a bit of work we had to put mm -hmm. extra programs on uh, developed extra programs had to do a lot more advertising and things like that. I wonder if you could give an example of one of these private organisations uh, organizations, particularly a business, because it, 
it seems kind of surprising to me that a business would be willing to make a contribution for something that is such a generalized benefit. Were there more specific and tangible immediate benefits for these businesses? Yeah, yeah. Um, any of their donations were not tied to getting any benefits back. But if I give you one example, um, H&J Smith's, which is a big department store in Invercargill, a family-owned one for about 150 years, I think, they put in uh, money each year over the three years. And, uh, of course, I've kept in close contact with them, and they have certainly recouped that by the additional people that come in and buy their cosmetics and their underwear Mm -hmm. and things like that. So they knew... And we'd taken a lot of time to get that multiplier effect um, out there and people understanding that. So the the taxi services, they know that they're going to increase by about 10% once their students come back. Um, The Invercargill Licensing Trust obviously put quite a lot of money into it because those extra people were out there um, eating and drinking in their bars, but also they were then coming out as graduates who um, could be employed in their establishments. Mm. This idea of direct uh, private sponsorship uh, is possible at universities and at polytechs because they exist in this interesting in-between space uh, between the public and private sector. Do you see any role for this kind of sponsorship in other parts of the public sector? Well, I I think we do see a bit of it. It's not something I've given a lot of thought to, but but we probably do see a bit of it. And for example, conservation. I know the smelter um, was very involved in the Takaki recovery. So I I think we there are pockets of it where they can either see benefit to their uh, business or they're doing it for public good because um, perhaps there may be, I don't know, environmental concerns raised about their business, so therefore they mm-hmm. are doing something to reciprocate. So I think there's, uh, I, I, yeah, I think there is opportunities in, in, in areas that we need to look at, like conservation. Onto the smelter, uh, I understand you're a big proponent of keeping the smelter open. Uh, Would you still hold that position if uh, that required further investment of government funds? Yeah, look, this investment of government funds is a bit of a myth, I'd have to tell you, and I haven't got the figures in front of me now, and I had them uh, certainly uh, during the election time, but the the smelter pays an enormous amount of money towards the cost of the upkeep of the network um, for uh, electricity to mm. move from the south to the north. So, and I wish I could remember the numbers, and I'm... I'm um, Worried that I'll I'll get it wrong if I try and, okay. and pluck them out of the year, but the contribution that is made by the smelter to Meridian, that is then paid as a dividend to the government, and the. Uh, contribution that the smelter makes to particularly the Southland economy, there's just a lot of myths around about money somehow going to the smelter. The smelter is a huge user of power and like any large user of power, they negotiate to get a better rate than what you or I would as an individual user. Do you believe that it can actually be calculated that they are not a net beneficiary from the taxpayer? 
Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely, I do. And I wish I had the figures. I wish I'd known you were going to ask that. Sure. Well, I, I don't and know the I, figures either. I, so we're... I would have them in a flash and yeah. I'm, I'm kicking myself that I didn't uh, think to bring them. But um, certainly power costs will not go down if we don't have the smelter because the costs of the upkeep of our network will have to be okay. borne by someone else. <laughs> More generally on that same topic, you can imagine the the taxpayers' union concern, which is that regardless of the costs and benefits of keeping the smelter open, it is a politicised issue, and I mm. assume it is an emotive one uh, around in Cargill, which raises the question, are politicians able to put a lid on how much money could be spent to keep the smelter open? How is it possible to draw a principled line or is this position just yeah. going to hold locally forever? Uh, look, when you say spent, there isn't money being given to the smelter. They negotiate a price for their power. So they are sitting in a room negotiating what they will be paying for their power. It's not money going from government to them. It Certainly they are getting power at a cheaper rate than you or I are, but if you are a uh, major business in, in any area, if you are buying 100 cars, you get them for cheaper than one person buying one car. So it's just, just that economy of scale. So this idea that money is flowing from the taxpayer to the smelter is a complete myth. Okay. Now, I'm going to go really broad here about you. If you woke up tomorrow and discovered that you were now Prime Minister, what policy levers would you pull? It is really broad because I certainly haven't been thinking in that space. Uh, look, I, can, I can give you a hint of why I'm asking that is because I'm interested to know if your answer will relate to Invercargill uh, or if you have a more uh, a general nationwide uh, perspective. Yeah. Look, um, I think very, very topical is the housing situation. National has got a suite of things that uh, National would immediately uh, be pulling levers on to uh, enable more houses to be built because no matter what else you fiddle around with, the housing situation is not going to be fixed until more houses are built. And National showed that after the earthquake in Christchurch where they uh, enacted uh, the ability to be able to override for mm -hmm. that short time some of the bureaucratic um, uh, roadblocks to enable houses to be built quickly. And we've seen that in the latest uh, rise in house prices. Christchurch yeah. has not been as dramatic as elsewhere because they had that, um, that additional scale of houses being built. So that would be the first thing I'd be in, I'd be bringing into play the um, suite of um, uh, matters that, uh, that National has, policies that National has, and reviewing the RMA, mm -hmm. obviously, because that's one of the big barriers. So that, that would be one of the first things. I, I'd certainly be looking at the agricultural and horticultural sector. I would be making sure that we were getting REC workers in so that we didn't have apples uh, rotting, falling off the trees and grapes rotting on the vines. So immediately there'd be pragmatic things done that are going to make our uh, economy recover faster. And uh, I guess because national and um, people like me are 
from a business background, we're used to juggling multiple balls in the air. We are frustrated by the slowness of the um, rollout of changes mm. that are coming from the current government that they seem to have to do one thing and think about it for ages and then wait till pressure is put on before doing another thing. So um, we, we have got to get our economy really pumping again and we can't get our economy pumping again if we haven't got workers picking fruit, if we haven't got um, things going on for our horticultural industry and our agricultural industry because that is where our money is coming from. Okay. Um, drastic transition here. In your maiden speech, you described Sir Tim Shadbolt as a good friend and a mentor. I wondered if you had a um, a couple of anecdotes or maybe a favourite story about working with Sir Tim. Oh, <laughs> how many hours have we got? <laughs> um, look, it was, uh, Sir Tim is uh, an amazing man who's done some great, great work for Southland. I think probably if we go back to the zero fees scheme, um, that's probably one of my best uh, stories in that we were actually all together in a hub over in Stewart Island, community leaders, when we came up with the zero fees scheme. And we all agreed that until the concepts had been worked up and the budgets done and the premises looked at and the analysis done, none of us would say anything about it. And so we came back from the island and the next day Mayor Tim went and, and as he often did, had a wander around our uh, audio production students and said, well, isn't it going to be great next year? You're not going to have to pay any fees. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just about sent us into deficit that year because it was just prior to the mid-year intake. <laughs> well, it was just prior prior to the mid-year intake, so nobody enrolled for the mid-year intake because they oh, all waited no. for the end-of-year intake. And, and look, in hindsight... It was great because he wasn't doing it maliciously. Mayor Tim, Sir Tim never does things maliciously at all. He was just doing it out of enthusiasm for these students and it got it out there and so we debated it and it was just debated every day of every week for the next three months until a decision was made on the funding. So um, that was great. And and then him and um, some of his comedian uh, partners went around and did tours and talked about how I invented it in the share yeah. and things yeah. like that. I think so, I heard that in your maiden speech. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, final question. What is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, well, I don't karaoke, but I do quite a lot of singing. I used to sing the uh, choir quite a lot, so no. I, I, I'm not a karaoke singer. I'm probably much more of a, um, uh, a gospel choir singer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any favourites? Oh, jeepers. Oh, no. You, ne you never know who's listening. Someone, yeah, yeah, might, no, someone might recognise the song. <laughs> someone might. Uh, look, just uh, lots of um, really nice Christmas songs, really, that I like singing in the choirs with. Fantastic. Mm. Thank you very much, Penny Simmons, National MP for Invercargill, joining us uh, on Taxpayer Talk. Thank you. Thank you.